As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is your weekend review where we discuss the major talking points from all the weekend's action across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host. And joining me is the Athletic's very own Jay Harris. Jay, it's been another chaotic weekend across Europe. And you and I were actually at the same game on Saturday in a West London derby that immediately divided the lines on this show and also explains why my voice sounds like this. No, yeah, it was a uh, it was a great game, really entertaining. First ever West London derby between Brentford and Fulham uh, in the top flight, and you know three two last minute winner. I think from a Fulham perspective, you probably couldn't have asked for much more. Hence why you've uh, got a slightly uh, um, what's the word um, horse yeah. rope. That's it. There you go. And uh, whereas I was, you know, head in hands when Mitrovic got that goal at the back post, um, feeling a little bit sorry for myself. But we go again. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was an incredibly entertaining game. Fuller went 2-0 up, scored in the first 45 seconds. It was all a bit mad. Um, and then Brentford dominated the second half. It was one of those that felt, you know, very much a game of two halves. Um, and it felt like all the momentum was with Brentford. And to be honest, it was, you know, that going into the injury time, you're like, OK, just hold out. Just hold out. Just, you know, take the points, take the split of the spoils. Um, and then Mitrovic came up big and look, there was a little bit of needle and not in a necessarily bad way. Ivan Tony did Mitrovic's <laughs> celebration after scoring. I like how he did it once and the goal got disallowed. And then he did it again. You're like, OK, fair enough. This man has he, some balls. And then committed. Mitrovic popped up. He's exactly. Committed. Exactly. Um, but a really, really good game. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like you said, Kind of lots going on. There were like lots of VAR calls. I mean, I still can't quite work out how Ivan Tony's first goal has been disallowed when you've seen some other goals this weekend that have been allowed for offside. Um, and Thomas Frank kind of said um, that after the match, just about, you know, VAR being consistent with things and stuff like that. But the Ivan Tony stuff really cracked me up. And, and I think I kind of mentioned it before we jumped on air. I do think Fulham overall fully deserved it. You know, they were just so intense in that first 30 minutes. And that's what you want from a derby. That's what you want from a rivalry. Cracking atmosphere. Teams getting in each other's faces. So definitely one for the, for the memory books. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's a lot going on. We're going to talk about Arsenal's hot start. We're going to talk about a classic at St. James's Park and the state of play at the top of the Bundesliga. But Jay, I think we have to start at Ellen Road, where Jesse Marsh's Leeds United absolutely dismantled Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea. Two wins and a draw now for Leeds this season. Do you think we're starting to see the vision that Marsh had for this side, considering he's now been into, able to bring in the players he wants? Obviously, we got to the end of last season. He stayed up with Leeds. That was the, the ultimate aim, considering where they were but this looks like a very different side now yeah you know I was there on the final day of last season when that Jack Harrison goal you know late in injury time kind of saved Leeds' season and it felt like for long parts of that game Leeds were really really worried about Brentford basically coming at them and, and sending them down so to have witnessed them kind of scrape over the line and kind of see the the emotional outburst that they did stay up it's obviously been really good to kind of see them start with a fresh state this year. Everybody wasn't really too sure what was going to happen with Rafinha and Phillips leaving. But I mean, Rodrigo's hit another level this season. It's a bit of a strange one because I remember when he joined Leeds from Valencia, he had quite a good pedigree. Yeah. And he never really quite showed it in his first couple of seasons with the club. And this year, he just seems to be on another level. But to go back to your question... That's definitely how it's coming across. You know, Jesse Mars has actually been able to sit down with his team over preseason, get his actual plans into place, whereas he was just fighting fires left, right and centre when he joined at the end of last year. So really impressive start from them. Yeah, I mean, look, Brendan Aronson obviously scored the opener for Leeds, but more than that, I thought he was the best player on the park. I mean, his pressing and his work rate forced the error from Mendy for the, for the first goal, but his vision was sublime. He brought the game to Chelsea and he fits this system absolutely perfectly. I mean, there was always going to be questions about him making that jump from the Austrian Bundesliga to the Premier League, but he's answering them and then some, I think. Yeah, definitely. And what we always have to remember with young players is that sometimes when they kind of come into a new team in a new league, what kind of stands out more than anything else is not their energy, but their kind of lack of composure in the final third. So they're doing everything right. You know, they're chasing balls, you know, you know, making great runs off the ball and things like that. The Vinicius Junior effect. <laughs> exactly that. But kind of lacking just that, that clinical edge in the final third. And I think Aronson's been kind of like the complete opposite. So that fair play to him, because as you said, it's a jump to go from Austrian Bundesliga to, str to starting straight away in the Premier League. And he's kind of hit the ground running. So there were a couple of passes he made in the game, which I thought were really slick, kept Chelsea guessing. And it was a, it was a terrific performance from him. And I thought his post-match interview with, uh, with Jack Harrison was really good to see as well. You know, it must be such a culture shock. He's, you know, come from the US, then he's gone to Austria. Now he's in the UK in Leeds and clearly just the way he was interacting with Harrison tells me he's settled into that squad like so well and has like great relationships with them and that, that's brilliant to see yeah, I mean, look, a good weekend for players who've made that jump from MLS to the Premier League, right? Because Jack Harrison was on the score <laughs> sheet as well. Um, and then there was Tyler Adams. And it was a wonderful display from both the Americans on the pitch in white at the very least. And and the one in the stands in, in, in Jesse Marsh. And look, Tyler Adams, I think, had a point to prove after what I'd call a mixed spell at Leipzig. Some massive highs, but not really the consistency, not getting in the starting 11 every week. But in this game, he put out fires everywhere, dominated the midfield. And in a game that, lacked N'Golo Kante obviously he was the presence in there that was the one who was everywhere who had the you know that pressing that intensity and and I thought he was you know absolutely sensational that building block they've got there with him and Mark Rocker feels like it is something that's really beginning to work for Leeds 
Yeah, Tyler Adams, he, to me, he kind of reminds me of that classic player who, when you go to a football match with kind of like older members of your family or older friends, they're all, he's going to be their favourite player. They're like, oh, if you really know football, player like Tyler Adams, that's someone you like. And what I mean by that is he might not necessarily be doing the glamorous stuff, as you've already kind of touched upon, but the just consistency to be in the right place at every time, to make those interceptions, to make those tackles, it cannot be kind of like overstated how incredibly hard it is to kind of get that right. Because the second uh, a defensive midfielder in his mould does something wrong, nine times out of 10, the other team's going to concede. So I thought he was, you know, simply phenomenal today. And like you said, that kind of base with Rocker is really setting up Leeds well. And when they sold Phillips in the summer, a player that the fans had such a huge connection to. Yeah, absolutely. You, you did worry what it would do for them on the pitch and away from it because, you know, Phillips was the heartbeat of that team with Bamford. But so far, <laughs> you know, Phillips isn't really... I'm not too sure if Phillips is injured. I don't think he is, but we've not really seen him at Man City. Meanwhile, Leeds are flying high. So you never know in football sometimes. Yeah, I mean, two sides have the same points, right? City and Leeds. And if you'd said that <laughs> exactly. at the start of the season, I don't think many would have believed you. Um, look, there was another American in the mix too. And one that has question marks over him right now because Christian Pulisic came off the bench for Chelsea. And while there was some signs of life from him, he was dynamic, he was energetic. And I thought it was an improvement, to be honest, on what had come before for Chelsea. The situation when he gets onto the pitch meant that he didn't really have any scope to kind of affect the outcome of this game. And hasn't really, you know, Tottenham aside, hasn't really had that kind of moment to shine. And I suppose the question is, and the question that's obviously been dominating on social media, etc., is does he need to leave Chelsea in order to get more game time? You know, to find a system where he's actually cherished and his opportunities come in the spaces where he's most effective? Yeah, potentially. I was kind of, you know, doing a little bit of research before we jumped on. And uh, during his time at Chelsea, Pulisic's never played more than 27 appearances in a Premier League season. Um, and obviously part of that's down to injury. But then when you throw into the mix, he's playing left wing, right wing, behind the striker as a support striker. It's very, very difficult for a player to kind of get any type of consistency, especially when you consider that he's so young. But then he's 24 next month and they're kind of... Then you're peak entering years, what, they? Yeah. exactly peak years for a, for a winger. You're probably looking at 24 to 28, 29, 30, and he finds himself in just an absolute conundrum. And I I feel what works against him in this scenario is that Chelsea's kind of forward options are a little bit in flux, anyways. You know, Kai Havertz and Mount are going to be there regularly, and Sterling as well. But then they've sold Werner. Everybody's not really too sure what's going to happen with Callum Hudson Odoi. Ziyech has always been in and out of the picture. So if you're Thomas Tuchel, are you going to let a player like Christian Pulisic go? I don't think so. But then, as I'm sure all of our US listeners will be hoping, you kind of want Pulisic to get that. So he, you know, gets a great couple of months of regular game time playing his, in his preferred position before the World Cup. And then he can really shine on the world stage. Yeah, I mean, there's questions obviously about Tuchel's use of attackers and, you know, attacking intent. And I think that at Chelsea, we've seen a more defensively minded Thomas Tuchel, one who wants to control the state of the game kind of at all points, right? He is trying to basically mean that they can suffocate teams. Now, obviously that didn't work this weekend, but it has worked, you know, time and time before. So we're not, we're not going to say that there's anything wrong with, with what Tuchel's doing, but it doesn't seem to get the best out of attackers. And I think a player in Pulisic's mould who is someone who obviously wants to thrive and wants to try things, doesn't necessarily suit Tuchel. And yet Chelsea's options in there, and they've obviously been best at times when they have been strikerless, means that 
and the fact that he can play in a number of different positions means that he's basically too versatile and too useful to let go. I mean, there were links to Manchester United last week as, as a loan deal. That didn't really add up for me either. And I think that something you've got to look at there is why would Chelsea let him go to Manchester United and, and strengthen yeah. a rival yeah. when, when they don't have that much depth in these forward lines anyway? Yeah, definitely. And you, you, you kind of mentioned it and I kind of mentioned it about the versatility thing. Sometimes that's great when a player can kind of jump into all these different positions. Certainly from covering Brentford, that's something they've really cherished with players, kind of yeah. having that flexibility to do different things. But you've signed Pulisic for, what was it, 50, 60 million pounds. That's a huge sum of money. You, you kind of want a better return on your investment on that. So to me, it doesn't really make that much sense to be playing in different positions. But then as you've kind of alluded to, no one's kind of really shone in Tuchel's system in like a forward role. So it's not that Pulisic is the only one who's kind of not really fulfilling his potential. And then again, I remember towards the um, the year when Arsenal beat Chelsea in the FA Cup final, Pulisic was so impressive in those final couple months of the season, yep. got injured. And that's, that's kind of the tricky thing. He's injured, then he's playing in and out of his position. So maybe he does just need a fresh start. But yeah, I, I, I couldn't quite... I could understand the links from a Manchester United perspective, certainly. Yeah, 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 I couldn't I understand it from a from a Chelsea perspective. I think maybe potentially like a move to La Liga or, or Serie A or something like that might make more sense for him on a personal level. Yeah, I mean, we'll have him on loan at Fulham. You can just pop down the road, hang out with Tim Ream and Anthony <laughs> Robinson for a little while. He doesn't even need to move house. Everyone's a, everyone's a winner if we can just get him down the road uh, to, the, to the club higher on the table in SW6. Let's put it that way. Um, but let's jump onwards. And look, there were only two sides who had four points in the Premier League coming into this weekend, Arsenal and Manchester City. And only one remains now, Mikel Arteta's Arsenal, who sit top of the pile after three games with maximum points. Jay, we're a long way from them losing the first three games of last season without scoring a goal. This side looks very, very, very assured. And I think it's some early vindication for keeping faith with their manager because, you know, it wasn't just at the start of last season where there were where there were kind of questions and problems, even the end of last season where obviously that fourth place dropped out and, and it went over to you know, their, their great rivals, Tottenham. There were questions asked about the mentality of this Arsenal side then. We feel like we're a long way from there, even though that was only a couple of months ago. Yeah, I think the criticism of Mikel Arteta at the, the beginning of last season was was a little bit harsh. The yeah. Brentford game, I always felt like that, that was a tricky game. Brentford's first ever game in the Premier League, you know, Aubameyang and Lacazette were out with COVID. It was always going to be a slightly um, trickier hurdle than people maybe gave, gave Brentford credit for. And then obviously they lost to Manchester City and Chelsea who, you know, were in a much better position than yeah. them at the time. And I think if you kind of compared Arsenal's squad to the other members of the top six last season I don't think you would have put them in the top six so yes Arsenal fans were absolutely gutted at the end of the season when you know they kind of lost the momentum and kind of gave Tottenham the, the opportunity to sneak into the top four but at the beginning of the season I think a lot of Arsenal fans probably would have bitten your hand off if you'd said oh you can finish fifth and you can kind of see the improvement so let's give a little bit of you know leeway to Mikel Arteta for yeah. that and I think now what we're kind of seeing is the trust that Arsenal have placed in the manager really, really bearing fruit. They've kind of believed his process. They've kind of recruited players who kind of fit into what he's trying to achieve. And I think crucially, they've got a bit more strength and depth now. I think it might, I think they might get caught out in the Europa League and we can touch on that in a minute. 
But the fact that they've got the flexibility and the capability to switch between White Saliba and Gabriel at centre back or Tomiyasu and you know and have Jesus up front and Nketiah who's been looking good coming off the bench, they're in a much, much better place than than they were last year. So I think this is just, you know, they had to grin and bear it for a while and they're finally in a fully, fully good position. Yeah, I mean you mentioned him there. Gabby Jesus didn't score here, but he got an assist and he did have a goal chalked off for offside. It's two goals and two assists and three very impressive performances from Arsenal's new number nine. And I think what we're seeing is him rediscovering that hunger, that bite and that dynamism that he arrived in the Premier League with. It's really lovely to see him flourishing in North London because... You know, at City, you know, let's not take away from his achievements at City. I don't think anyone wants to do that. But I think there was always an element of it felt like he never got back that original kind of, I would say, dynamism that he came into, right? And at first we were like, oh, this is a player. He looks sharp. He looks hungry. And, you know, that's trying to step out of Aguero's shadow and, and be that player when there was so much going on didn't quite suit him. Now we look like that player all over again. I mean, let's be serious. Let's look at that Manchester City team, right? Probably only two players are guaranteed to start every week. Edison and Kevin De Bruyne and, and maybe one or two others if, if, you, if you're up for an argument. So it must be so frustrating, especially when you're, player, when you're someone who's like Gabriel Jesus, to constantly kind of be in and out of the team. Even when you're performing well, I remember countless times over the years where Jesus would, you know, score a couple of goals in a game and then the following weekend he'd be dropped and Guardiola would completely change his front three. It must be so hard to kind of keep that momentum up. Whereas Jesus has kind of gone into this Arsenal team. He knows he's going to be the number one striker. He's got like a clearly detailed plan of what Mikel Arteta wants from him. Whereas again, under Manchester City or under Guardiola at Manchester City last season, we started to see him play on the right. We started to see him play on the left. Whereas now he's got one goal and that's, you know, get into the box, finish away Odegaard's lovely passes and Saka's brilliant crosses. And it's clearly working. To be honest, he started better than I expected he would. But yeah. he, he's he's completely flourishing. And that's what happens when, you know, you get the backing of a manager. Yeah, there's also the element of, I think, the leadership group, right? He's He's been told he's part of this leadership group alongside Chaka and, and, and Erdegaard, who's been, you know, given the armband. And I'm sure there's a few more in, in that mix as well. But, you know, this is a player who's come in and, and, and clearly has, as you say, the manager's backing. But also it's, you know, this is where you we want you to step up and, and become a major part of this entire, entire club, not just a, a kind of peripheral figure. And I think it's so lovely to see, considering where he is in the Brazil squad, because, you know, what, what we've seen is what we've seen him play as, as a number nine for Brazil at a World Cup and fail to score. And considering some of the number nines that Brazil have gone into World Cups with and who have scored, that's something I think <laughs> that's eaten away at him for, for some time. So, you know, to see him doing this before a World Cup, where he clearly wants to be back as Brazil's first choice number nine, it just feels like he's made a move at the right time. And it's not something you can always say about a player, right? Yeah, definitely. You said something really interesting there, kind of about him being involved with this with the senior leadership group. And we've got to remember, he's 25 now. And when he first arrived at Manchester City, he came straight from Brazil. And that would have been a whirlwind experience. And Arsenal's team and squad is a lot younger than Manchester City's first yep. and foremost. And you've also got to factor into account Manchester City's squad is obviously packed full of winners, you know, at different levels, not just in England, but, you know, in Germany, in France, in Spain, in so many different leagues. Jesus has that winning mentality that Arsenal's squad do not have at the moment. So he can kind of go into that dressing room and look at the others and say, 
you know, I've won the Premier League, I've won the FA Cup, I've won this, I've won that. And they're going to look up to him and admire that. And hopefully he can kind of bring that into the into the squad. But yeah, as you alluded to, for Jesus, looking up to that World Cup in Qatar, he must be absolutely rubbing his hands with glee, playing week in, yep. week out, thinking, you know, this is my, my absolute chance to shine. So fair play to him for earning it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, moving on to the rest of this team, Erdegaard scored the first two, Saliba scores a brilliant third, Martinelli was excellent, Zinchenko as well. I suppose the question is, I know we're three games in, but these questions are being asked, so we've got to discuss them. Are this side genuinely title contenders or are we yet to see Arsenal <laughs> properly tested? Have you heard about the uh, Saliba chant that Arsenal fans were going wild for in the away end on, on Saturday? Have you heard about this? I haven't yet, no. Um, so there's a song it's like tequila so it's like du, 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 du. and then at the end there's Saliba that's very good it's very good <laughs> it's good I just got to mention that um, are Arsenal genuine title contenders no like let, let's be serious their their squad is not comparable to to Liverpool and Manchester City I feel really bad for making a joke about Saliba and then absolutely going, going the other way with the, the brutal harsh reality but you know fair play to Arsenal for, for beating Leicester Bournemouth and Crystal Palace so far not necessarily the easiest of games but ones with the investment that they put into their squad they, sh they should be winning yeah, the yeah. biggest test of this Arsenal team is going to be when they come up against a Liverpool and Manchester City or Tottenham games which you know, we saw them rattled in last year. You know, Arsenal lost 5-0 to Manchester City this time a year ago and then obviously lost to them again in that, that fascinating encounter in January. So can they get a point off Manchester City? Can they beat Manchester City at home? That's going to be where we really find out if this team are serious top four contenders. Because yes, Arsenal started fantastically, but Tottenham are still a great side. Chelsea are still a great side. And there's going to be so many ups and downs over the course of the season. What's going to be the biggest probably factor in this top four, four battle is who can be the most consistent. And we saw Arsenal so many times last year trick us into this narrative that we're currently on. Uh, Arsenal have got it all worked out and then they'd lose to, to Brighton or they'd lose to Newcastle at St. James's Park. So that's kind of what they need to work on for, for now. I think the thing is that, you know, they're nine from nine. And as you say, they are games that I think you'd be expecting them to win. But their next five are Fulham, Aston Villa, Manchester United, Everton and Brentford. And then they face Tottenham in the North London derby and then they have Liverpool and it all gets a bit tight very quickly. But is it possible that they still have maximum points and the Spurs come to the Emirates? Because it feels like it is with that fixture list. Now, I'm not going to say it's plausible, never, never. but it seems possible. <laughs> never. For one, you know, you're almost discrediting your own club by suggesting that Arsenal are going to roll them over. Whereas obviously we've seen in, you know, you're unbeaten as well. And, you know, really impressive performances in your first three games. We know that Brentford, a little bit of bias on my behalf here, can give any team a good run for their money. And I think there has to be a reaction at Manchester United at some point, right? They've obviously signed Casemiro. We're not really too sure what other business they're going to do between now and yeah. before the transfer window closes. But if Manchester United are still on a a really dismal run by the time Arsenal play them in, in a few weeks' time, I'd be really surprised. You're expecting quite like a, a reaction at some point. So no, I don't think there's any possibility that it happens. But if I'm proven wrong, then, you know, just forget everything I previously said about them not being title contenders. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll come back to this in, in four weeks' time and, and see where we are. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Um, for now, though, they are too clear of Manchester City after Pep's side played out an instant classic with Newcastle at St. James's Park, finished 3 all. Firstly, what a game. Secondly, props to Newcastle because they came out and took this game to Manchester City. They were absolutely brilliant. But even still, this City side were 3-1 down and fought back superbly. They're surely still the team to beat at this stage. I honestly think my bigger surprise from watching this game is that Man City didn't win 4-3. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, they are just absolutely relentless. And just because of the way the schedules worked... Um, this is the first time I've actually properly been able to watch Man City this season and kind of see how Erling Haaland's kind of fit into the team. And I just did not quite realise, or I did maybe did not fully appreciate how frightening it is. Um, there's a moment for people, you know, if you didn't watch the game live, try and find it on highlights where De Bruyne plays a free ball for him. And I don't know how he beats Botman to this ball and outmuscles him. And he's just unfortunate that Nick Pope is about a yard away from him and makes the save. Makes a good save. Ha- Very good save. Haaland's speed was absolutely incredible. And his movement and his runs. So to have a superstar like that in your team, in addition to everybody else that Manchester City already had, and then to kind of show the character to fight back from from free will, free one down and to score twice in, in such a short amount of time, Man City are definitely still the team to to beat in this title race. They were they were absolutely phenomenal. Even though, you know, they they, they dropped points, they still showed more than enough that they're a quality side. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and I think that you know the fact that they scored the two goals within three minutes of each other, and it's like okay, cool, City are back, and and they probably could have <laughs> actually equalised before they ended up doing so. Holland missed a uh, you know a good opportunity, as you say. So yeah. it is one of those things where it, every time you think okay, anyone else here might might fall over, and and City have been you know accused in the past of not having the mentality. It doesn't seem like that's the case this time. And it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, someone gets the brunt of this next week. Um, can, I, can, I, can I just say quickly as well, 
De Bruyne's pass for Bernardo Silva, nutmegs Willock. Like, <laughs> it might be the best assist I've ever seen. And that's saying it's, something. It's outrageous. It's uh, and I'm sure he meant that on purpose as well. Like, it, uh, how can you compete with a team that has players that do that for fun? It is a sublime, sublime piece of skill. Such I, such a great pass. I tweeted saying he was playing 4D chess, and it, it did feel like that. He's just he's just exactly. looking at things in a different way. Um, exactly. But let us let us depart the Premier League um, and let's go this week to Germany, where there's been a lot of discourse over the course of the past few days about the league and how Bayern's domination has affected things. Michael Cox wrote an article here on The Athletic about whether Bayern should start every game 1-0 down. And whilst I imagine it, you know, there's this element of tongue-in-cheek in this, it did provoke a lot of conversation on social media. And this weekend, Bayern answer that by hammering Bochum 7-0. It means they've now scored 15 goals in their first three games, conceding once. Jay, there was a lot of talk about how they were going to replace Lewandowski's goals, but it just hasn't been a problem so far. Yeah, I wasn't really too sure if it ever would be. I think sometimes we get too fixated on teams like having a direct number nine and obviously Lewandowski was that. And we obviously spoke about kind of like, which there's kind of like a little bit of relation to this about City when they didn't have Haaland and they didn't have Aguero, how they kind of work around that. But if you just kind of run through the players that scored for Bayern against Bochum, then there's never going to be any issue about scoring goals. You know, yeah. Coleman, Kingsley Coleman's on the score sheet, Leroy Sane, Sadio Mane, Serge Gnabry, you know, those are all players who are probably going to hit 15 league goals each. So I don't think they ne ever needed to kind of have any worry about replacing Lewandowski's goals. They might not have an individual who reaches such a high number individually, but they definitely kind of have the kind of like composite parts to kind of like just reach another ridiculous goal to total throughout the season anyways. Yeah, I mean, look, famously at Leipzig, Julian Nagelsmann didn't actually like using strikers. And now we're seeing this again here, like the front three, if you will, you know, obviously it's it's quite a fluid system, but this whole thing is so fluid. Mane, Sane and Komen in, in this case, with Thomas Muller just sort of roaming around doing what he does behind them. And there's an argument to say that this side looked better than ever. This was a proper mauling. And Nagelsmann didn't even have the magic feet of Jamal Musiala to call on this week. Yeah, exactly. And, and look at the kind of like four players you've just mentioned. The kind of way that they can interchange positions must be so difficult for a defence to come up against. Yeah. Because we know that Mane's obviously, you know, had great success kind of playing through the middle at times for Liverpool, but then he's equally kind of comfortable popping up on the left and on the right. So if you're a centre-back and one minute you're marking Mane and the next minute you're coming up against Sane and then the next minute you've kind of got to be aware of the, the run that Muller is making from deep. You're going to have a headache after the first 10 minutes, let alone by, let alone by the end of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like you said, sometimes that kind of fluidity is kind of better because it makes you way more unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, look, when we talk about title races, naturally, we always look to Dortmund, right, to be the ones that challenge Bayern as, as the last side to win the trophy that weren't wearing red. Um, but this question always rears its head about the mentality of this side. And it returned with a vengeance this week as Dortmund 2-0 up against newly promoted Werder Bremen in the 88th minute and conspired to lose the game 3-2. They conceded in the 89th, 93rd, and then the 95th minute at home. We've seen this before, Jay. Yeah, we have. And uh, almost feel a little bit frustrating with Dortmund over the years because it feels like at the beginning of every season, you kind of look at Dortmund's squad, you look at Bayern's and you think, yeah, do you know what? Bayern have the edge here. 
but Dortmund is still going to push them a long way. And then the wheels will kind of slowly, maybe not the wheels won't start falling off, but they'll slowly start hitting some speed bumps. And by kind of like January, February time, it feels like Bayern have kind of already wrapped the league up. And kind of to to be 2-0 up in the 88th minute and concede one goal for any top team, that that's like a poor display. To concede two goals is dreadful, but you need to kind of have the mentality and the understanding to escape that game with a point. So to then concede and let three goals in in such a short amount of time, it doesn't really feel like a one-off when you kind of look at, at Dortmund's history over the last couple of years. It feels a little bit more like maybe you said, like a mentality thing. And you do have to remember Dortmund's squad is maybe not packed with the same number of, of winners and no, it's not. You know, experiences by a Munich's team. So we can't we kind of need to reference that. But yeah, to go down like that so early into the season, it's got to be frustrating. I mean, the big question, I suppose, is, is this a problem for the Bundesliga? I mean, the league has so many brilliant storylines. I think it has the best fan culture of any of Europe's top leagues. It has a system of fan ownership that empowers supporters and a history of bringing through wonderful youth prospects. I love the Bundesliga. But does a monopoly on the title mean that there's less interest across the world? And does that matter? Oh, of course it matters. Like we, we watch sport for, for entertainment. And if you feel like what's going to happen is a foregone conclusion, then you're going to get bored. Like it's, it's pretty obvious. I think obviously if you're somebody who lives in Germany and you support a German football team, regardless of whether Bayern Munich win the title or not, you're going to be watching your team week in, week out. But for the league and other leagues, so maybe like France, for example, to grow, they need to get interest from people who live in different countries and from like across the across the world. But if you feel like, is there much point of me watching Bayern take on Bochum on Saturday because in all likelihood they're going to win 7-0, then you're kind of going to tune out of it a little bit. Do you know what I mean? I and do, it's yeah. just... And, and also, everybody loves those intense title races. You know, everybody talks about the year that Aguero scored that goal for Man City being like the iconic Premier League moment because it went so close to the wire. Nobody really talks about, well, they do, when Man City won 100 points because it was such a fantastic achievement. But what people will always remember is that bitter rivalry, the Arsenal-Man United years. And when a league doesn't have that, fans probably feel like they're getting a little bit shortchanged. I mean, is there an element that this is blown out of proportion? Is, is, is watching Bayern Bochum any different to watching Man city Bournemouth? Um, or, you know, Juventus won nine in a row in, in Serie A. We think that PSG are, you know, a pretty much foregone conclusion most year. Now, I know that Lille beat them and I know that we've seen Monaco win this league as well. But equally, most years, it feels like that's a foregone conclusion. One of the big two always wins it in Spain. City have a kind of stranglehold on the Premier League that was broken by what was only an outstanding Liverpool side. Is this actually that different to anywhere else? I'd kind of say there's a couple of differences in, in some of those scenarios in the sense that, yes, Juve, for example, won nine Serie A titles in a row. But then in the last two years, you've had AC Milan win it and Inter Milan win it. So two different teams. Yeah. Yes, Man City seem to have a, a stranglehold on the Premier League at the moment, but Liverpool have pushed them all the way in every single season. So it's not like they've been, you know, running away with it for fun. You know, it went down 
well, it's gone down to the final day of the season on, on two occasions and Man, Man, Man City just edged it. But then that's where you maybe kind of compare Bayern Munich to, to PSG a little bit more where they seem to just kind of dominate in these leagues and not have much competition. But then again, Lille won the um, the league title in 2020 21. So maybe I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> it's one of those, isn't it? it? It's a strange one. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who fall on both sides of this divide. Uh, like for me... If I was going to watch a game this weekend in the Bundesliga, it would never have been Bochum versus Bayern. Exactly. I would have exactly. watched Union versus RB Leipzig because I thought it would be a, a more competitive game. But equally, I'd probably say the same about pretty much any league. I, you know, that you know, you go to whatever and you, you look at the games in Serie A, and you go, okay, what's the game with the best? Well, with the two two teams who are going to run each other closest because that's the natural way of watching the most competitive competitive argument, I suppose. So it's a, it's a funny one in some ways, but I do wonder if it's been blown out of proportion in, in some regard at the very least. But I think it's one that people are going to debate forever. So uh, we're not going to see it change any time soon. Um, and with that, we're going to go to our Around the Ground section. And as ever, we're going to finish the episode with a little flyby around Europe to keep you on top of all of the rest of the weekend's action. We're going to start in Spain, where it turns out that the what you need... Or it helps to at the very least to having your name to, to ensure you've got a perfect start is a Real and Real Madrid comfortably put Celsius to the sword in Vigo they won 4-1 even with Eden Hazard missing a penalty late on uh, Real Betis beat Mallorca 2-1 to ensure they're still faultless whilst perhaps the most impressive result was Villarreal who won 2-0 against Atleti <laughs> at the Metropolitano and Unai Emery masterclass as he recorded his first ever managerial victory over Cholo Simeone um, Barcelona started fast with Robert Lewandowski opening his La Liga account after just 45 seconds of their encounter with Real Sociedad they were pegged back but a brilliantly worked second from Usman Dembele, another from Lewandowski and a fourth from Ansu Fati saw the Blaugrana pick up their first win. Uh, Chavi substitutions, especially Ansu Jay, he got two assists and a goal, changed his game and he's answered some major questions, Chavi, that were posed after last week's stalemate and the frustrations. Yeah, but I mean, we did say last week, didn't we, after they drew 0-0 with Rejo Vallecano, that um, there wasn't anything to be to be that concerned about. But I guess maybe the funniest thing in that regard is that Barcelona have kind of gone to such extreme lengths to pull these economic levers this summer. Yeah. And what actually happens is that Ansu Fati, who's come through their academy, is the one who kind of comes up with the answers. But the intriguing thing is that I'm pretty certain Jules Koundé is still not registered He's not, for no. the club, if I'm right. And um, that's a really intriguing one. I find that to be quite a quite a bizarre situation because obviously he's moved from Sevilla, had had very nearly joined Chelsea, and to have missed two games of the season because your your club are because of the kind of like financial situation that your club's in, I find that absolutely bizarre. Like if I was in his situation, that wouldn't sit comfortably with me at all. And when I looked at the result, that was my first thing. Like, did, did Kunde play? And I saw that he didn't, and I thought that's just. That's just such a strange situation to be yeah. in. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, the other thing is it without him, Sevilla struggled again. They lost their opener last week to Osasuna. And then in their first home game, they needed a late, late equaliser to draw one all with newly promoted Real Valladolid in a very bad tempered contest. Um, so he's probably looking at them and going, oh, well, 
they could have done with me as well. And, and I'm sure after <laughs> the weekend's performances from Chelsea, he would have been like, well, they probably could have done with me as well. So exactly. there's plenty to, to chew on for Jules Koundé, but I'm sure it will get sorted. Uh, over in France, PSG put seven past Lille, including the fastest goal in Ligue 1 history from Kylian Mbappe. After just eight seconds, he got a hat-trick. Messi scored, Neymar scored, Hakimi scored. That should ease some of the noise around the four of them and the relationship that they have. Um, 17 goals in their first three league on games. I mean, is this a good look for Galtier, a bad look for Pochettino or just a bit of both? Or do we just kind of go back to our debate a minute ago about Bayern Munich and <laughs> I had to be cheeky and put that in one Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, you know, I guess probably the most infuriating thing about that result is that they all are not exactly pushovers. So to have lost 7-1 it's, it's, it's not the greatest. It started so well as well. It was, it was a really good start it, of the season. It's not the greatest indication that PSG are going to be really pushed in this title race this season. But then when you kind of do have those talents, whether they can kind of <laughs> always gel perfectly together, you're always going to be, you know, you're, the likelihood is you're always going to blow team, teams away. And then when you come up with, you know, quite funky ideas from straight from kickoff and score after eight seconds then yeah. you become even more unpredictable so that 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 was a fun thing to see yeah it's a it's a funny one because Galtier's clearly got a system now here with the three at the back and, and allowing the front three to play with Messi sort of drifting around behind them is is really lovely and Messi looks very sleek all of a sudden you know in this little hole and you know it didn't go to plan really for him last year I think uh, in Paris but feels like he's uh, he's in the mood again and I think it's going to be a very very terrifying prospect for a lot of teams um Leon were very good again they beat Troyes 4-1 and keep an eye on Lons who thumped Monaco by the same scoreline also there were 11 red cards in the 10 games in Ligue 1 this weekend which is pretty mad uh, in terms of you don't see that very very often a bad tempered league as far as I'm concerned do you, do you know what I have to mention because again this caught me by surprise Alexis Sanchez is at Marseille. He is indeed, yes, he is. Um, it's going to be very interesting. <laughs> I, I, the, Sanchez's legacy, to me, is going to be so bizarre because you could make a pretty strong argument that for three years when he was at Arsenal, he was probably one of the top three players in the Premier League. And then I feel like people have kind of completely forgotten about him ever since because it didn't work out at Man United. He was one of the highest paid players at Man United and at Inter Milan, and he didn't really make an impact. He did okay. He did okay. he did okay at Inter. He, he used to come on and but, score a lot, but he very rarely started. But not in the same way that he was, you know. Oh, no, absolutely You not. know, like an absolute menace to Arsenal. And now he's at Marseille. And I, I just feel like people people forget what a truly like terrifying player he was in his prime a, a few years ago. So when I saw that he'd popped up at Marseille, I just thought <laughs> it just it just one of those kind of quirky players in football. The Arsenal-Marseille link keeps going strong. So there's that to, exactly. there's that to consider. Um, over in Italy in Serie A, Napoli looks sensational. Uh, they ran out 4-0 winners over Monza, backing up their 5-2 win last week over Verona. And new signing Quiccia Quadratskelia added a brace to his goal and assist last time out. Napoli are heaps of fun. I'm really, really excited about this Napoli side. Um, Milan drew one all with Atalanta in Bergamo in a really good game, uh, whilst Inter remained perfect with a 3-0 win over Spezia. And they were far more convincing as opposed to last week. Um, in the Premier League, worth pointing out that another mighty performance from Brighton saw them run out 2-0 winners over West Ham, who remain without a point, a goal, and rooted to the foot of the table. Are you worried about West Ham, Jay? 
Yeah, just a little bit. I've chatted to a few West Ham fans over the last couple of years, and um, what they've all always kind of said is that they, you know, with this run to the Europa League and kind of like Declan Rice and the kind of like squad that they've assembled, they'd probably kind of hit their peak. Um, it's so hard to kind of break into that top six, as we know. West Ham were kind of performing at that absolute maximum, and now when I bear that in mind, what they were saying to me, I'm fearing a little bit. Have they kind of just peaked and now they're kind of like falling off that cliff? There's yeah. obviously going to be a little bit of a hangover from what happened in the in the Europa League final at the end of last season. But then I also tell myself, this is football. It happens. You know, new signing Gianluca Scamacca has only played a couple of times so far. You'd imagine when he gets up and running, they'll start climbing back up the leagues again. Still got a squad that's blessed with so much talent. So I don't think there's anything that, that massive to be worried about. But what I do feel like saying is just... Throw more credit towards Brighton's way. They've been so because good because they've been so good. And the touch, I think it was from Gross for Trossard's Trossard's goal. Yeah. People, if you've not watched it, go watch it. It's absolutely magnificent. But the way that Brighton deal with selling players, I think, is something that all teams um, should really take notice of because they just seem to have a succession plan in place. And they've obviously lost Kukure and Ibasuma, and they've not even batted an eyelid. Yeah, this is it. You know, you bring in Purvis as Stupinan, uh, you bring in you know, Moises Caicedo steps up straight away. They just feel like they're an incredibly well-run club. And, uh, you know, considering they drew nil-nil with, with Newcastle last time out and considering what Newcastle did today and Brighton were probably the better side in that game. So, uh, so you know, yeah, maybe maybe this is Brighton's year to finally challenge these <laughs> European places. Um, Leicester beaten by Southampton. What was another abject performance from the Foxes? They do not look in a good way. Um, Everton did, though, pick up their first point at Goodson Park against Nottingham Forest, thanks to a late Damare Gray equaliser. And Spurs battled through against Wolves to a hard-fought 1-0 win. Um, and we talked, of, of course, about the big guns in Germany, but a word to Union Berlin, who remain unbeaten with a massive win over RB Leipzig and uh, Bayer Leverkusen still pointless after a third consecutive loss not the start they wanted stuck at the bottom of the table knocked out of the cup for the side who finished third last year it has just not got going at all so far this season so one to keep an eye on there as well um, and with that it's time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show uh, we hope that you've enjoyed our roundup of all the big stories across Europe this weekend all that's left for me to do is say thank you all for listening and thank you for putting up with my voice I promise I'll sort this out by <laughs> next week um, thank you so much to Jay Harris no my absolute pleasure and honestly hats off to you because you know you've you've battled through it like a pro so 10 out of 10 performance I mean when you bring it upon yourself by uh, by just spending 20 minutes after the game standing on a chair shouting um, I think you, you have to you have to crack on and enjoy yourself but look um, you don't get these Derby Day wins very often especially as a Fulham fan uh, I've been Jack Collins this has been your weekend review we'll see you all next week thanks for tuning in <laughs>